Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's programme, the investigation into the All Whites' failed World Cup campaigns finally completed. What do we learn? Warriors player Conrad Hurrell's AMCAM video costs him $5,000. We examine the perils of social media for sports people. The Tour de France could dent New Zealand's road cycling medal hopes at the Commonwealth Games. The Pulse may finally be about to crack the Trans-Tasman netball playoffs. The veteran shooter Donna Wilkins tells us why. And 60 years ago this week, Roger Bannister became the first person to run a mile in less than four minutes. The tape is broken, and so is the record athletes have long been dreaming about. But at first, Bannister knows little about it. He stumbles into the arms of his coach, completely exhausted by his magnificent effort. The long-awaited review of the All-Whites' failed bid to qualify for the Football World Cup has finally been completed. The incoming New Zealand football chief executive, Andy Martin, had expected to have the report when he started the job in February, but has only just received it this week. New Zealand football are not releasing the independent report, but it acknowledges the challenges involved in assembling the best players regularly to play quality opposition. Alex Coogan-Reeves asked Andy Martin what changes the report will bring about. Ten weeks in, and this obviously has been hanging over us for that period of time, but I think having read the report now, um, I'm quite pleased that it sort of confirms a lot of what I'd found out myself over the last ten weeks, Um, and it's it's taken a very positive view in terms of what needs to be done for us to move forward and be successful. So as the new boy, um, really pleased to get that sort of guidance, I guess. Will the report be released publicly? No, the report report was done um, on the basis that the the guys who've contributed to the report um, absolutely know their comments are confidential. I wanted to get, or or the board wanted to get, um, as as a cleaner report as possible. We wanted to make sure everybody was given a full contribution and felt that they could do that uh, without recrimination. So we made it confidential up front. It was for the business. And what will happen is the... The recommendations will be, you know, either we're working on them and we're going to make them happen or we're going to, um, you know, look at them and decide whether we need to tweak them. But fundamentally, they'll form a part of the high performance plan for the next four years around how we get to Russia and beyond. Um, and that report absolutely will be a public document because it will set out the agenda and the vision for football. Sure. So what were some of the recommendations out of it? It, it sort of recognised that, um, you know, this fresh impetus required... Uh, for the All-Whites. I think we've seen the Ferns have done very well and they've progressed, but actually the All-Whites have perhaps lagged behind a little bit. And, and perhaps the two or three key areas that came out were around, first of all, around the need for really robust planning and preparation. Um, you know, in a high-performance environment, things do change over the term and you've got to be ready and have stress-tested your plans and that's something perhaps that we can get better at. Um, we've already made inroads into that by hiring a very sort of top-quality logistics and international team manager who already were getting great feedback from the players from the Japan game and certainly around the South Africa game. So we've made some, some headway in that space already, but we've got to make sure we've got good plans and they're fully tested. 
um, in the same space, the, um, a very clear request from the players was around having a planning group that they're involved in, that they can help and comment on, on behalf of, you know, so a smaller group of senior players on behalf of the team can really make a contribution and help collectively push forward. And again, that's in place. It's been working pre-Japan. We've got senior players on that committee and, and making a very positive contribution. So really pleased, again, that there's progress being made in that space. One of the big problems, and it's been alluded to, has been getting the team together regularly enough for, yeah. for enough quality games. Do you think having them more involved in that process and the, sort of some of the decisions that are being made will make them more willing to come and play for New Zealand? I think that's got to be the plan. I mean, you know, we know that we've got a difficult sort of set of uh, cards to, to play with in terms of logistics, but we've got to be smart about it and we've got to make sure that we can get players in the right place, right time and, and ready to play. Um, but we've got to make sure that we're consulting with them and that everybody's, you know, on the right page in terms of what we're trying to achieve. I mean, an interesting, another interesting point that came out of the report was, uh, again, from the players, was around developing a unique Kiwi culture, something that other sports do very well in this country um, and something that encourages the players to want to be a part of an environment that's very different. I guess now that this is finally done, it sort of allows you to move on with your planning and the next step of that is the head coach, which you've uh, put out the advertisement for. Absolutely. So, you know, I think we were absolutely committed to seeing the report before we went public on the head coach. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation. We think we've had, at last count, about 50 applications already before the advert was out. Um, so I think we aren't going to be short of, uh, of, of quality candidates. The, the challenge now is to make sure that we can get the right team together to, to deliver what we want. Have you, uh, where have the applicants come from? Has it been pretty broad? Um, I think I could safely say they're global applicants. Um, which is great because, you know, it's an attractive job. And, you know, we're not going to be able to compete with the salary levels being paid at some of the top professional clubs in Europe, for example. But that said, we've got something very different. You know, we've got New Zealand, um, we've got this Kiwi uh, approach to sport that is very attractive, and we've got to make sure we attract the right person. And obviously there's been a lot of speculation about uh, Graham Arnold as a possible candidate. Looks like he's going to end up with an A-League job. You're still open to someone doing it um, while coaching full-time? I think we've got to take an open mind uh, on this. I think the ideal we'd all like to see is a full-time head coach that meets the criteria of the job description and they're with us all the time. Um, it may be that that's possible. It may be that that proves not the right solution. And so I think discounting anything now would be wrong. Um, let's see what comes up and um, let's see what we could put together. So, for example, it might be that the best person is actually going to be in another in a club and we bring them in to do it as a job share. But then what we'd have to be thinking about, if we did go down that route, was a full-time assistant, for example, to make sure that we've got somebody on the ground full-time consulting with the players. But as I said, the going-in position is we'd like to be in a full-time situation with the head coach. We've got to keep an open mind. That's the Chief Executive of New Zealand Football, Andy Martin, talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. The Warriors Rugby League player Conrad Hurrell will play in this weekend's National Rugby League match against Canberra Raider despite being fined $5,000 over a sex video which surfaced on social media this week. The video reportedly shows the 22-year-old engaged in a sex act while driving. The club has also ordered him to undergo social media counselling. On a video posted on the Warriors website, Hurrell spoke of his embarrassment. I just wanted to um, apologise to everyone, the club and fans and my family as well and all my friends out there um, for what I've done. First um, first of all, if you think about it, I was 
being stupid and now I've, I've learned a lot from what I've done and I just want to move on and keep playing footy and um, I'm just glad I get the opportunity to play, to play this weekend. Fiona Fenwick is a director of communications company 15 Minutes. Fiona Fenwick is a director of communications company 15 Minutes. She's worked with several sports groups, including the New Zealand Rugby Union, and she says such incidents as the Hurrell one or the recent naked photo of all-black Aaron Smith doing the rounds of social media are nothing new, but they show a lack of respect and understanding of social media. There's nothing new about the situations we repeatedly hear about sports people in the media for doing or saying various things. Um, nothing new at all. It's just back in the day, it used to be a grainy photograph or it used to go under the radar because it just wasn't the immediacy of social media. So it's certainly something that all sports people need to be aware of and that the organisations, I strongly believe it's incumbent on all the sporting organisations, is to educate, train and support the young players coming through especially uh, to, to know the consequences of their actions. What is it that you get or receive when, when you talk to these sports people? What is it that hits you the most about them and social media? Uh, total shock and surprise most of the time. Um, a lot of sports people are terrified by social media and say, I won't touch it. You know, the key thing with all of this, with anything like this, is personal responsibility. It comes down to the individual and what they choose to do. But unfortunately, generations coming through now, most born with a smartphone in their hand, almost literally, and really haven't got the capability of understanding the, the consequences until they're in the middle of it. When they're in the middle of a situation, they get it. But actually looking ahead... Pretty much a lot of, uh, especially young people, think there's a, a little bit of bulletproof uh, going on. But when they're in the middle of a situation, they think, yep, never thought about that, didn't realise the implications and consequences. So when you see a situation like Conrad Hurrell or, or Aaron Smith, what goes through your mind? Um, what goes through my mind is I wonder, have they ever been, uh, has there ever been discussions around consequence of, of social media? Do they really understand the, the extent of the reach of their social media? Do they know the part they play within their organizations, that they're just one part of the reputation of the greater club, which is trying so hard to get people bums on seats and getting people coming on supporting the club that pays the salaries, that does all of that, that but do they actually realize that they're actually one part of the jigsaw with all of that? And if they get it wrong, the jigsaw's not complete, and there's implications for everybody. So I, I think um, when you see situations like that, and they do happen almost on a daily basis. I mean, there's not one day will go by that I don't get new material. And what I do in the, the sessions that I do with the players is, you know, I'll actually show examples from other sports, international, try and keep it not, not too personal. Um, and, and just, you know, we look at it. And you can see them all looking, saying, that's just so stupid that that person did that. They get it. They see it. But you almost have to put it right in front of people and say, and, and that, you know, it's almost there, but the grace of God go I, that it didn't happen to me or I, it could have been me. The point that all of this presumably went on before social media, so there's an element, obviously, that so much more of it is simply becoming public, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, this is not new. This has been going on forever and ever and ever. And it's just that the immediacy of social media and the outreach of it is just phenomenal compared to what went before. I mean, when, I, when I've worked with some, um, some sports people in the past, that had there been social media at the time a number of their careers would not have happened. Uh, we're talking international careers would not have happened because those things would not have been missed. And they were back in the day. There is no hiding place now. 
And a lot of people can say, oh, it's just not fair, you know, I, I don't want the spotlight, I don't want the profile. It's one of the things that need to be instilled in all our sports people coming through. You know, you, you've heard the expression, you wear the jersey, you take the responsibility. You know, you put on the shirt, whatever sport it is. And it's not just sports, this is corporates as well. But, you know, we're talking about sport. You put on the jersey, you step up to represent, then you take a lot of responsibility with that. So you can throw your toys out as much as you like, you must step up. You've got to take personal responsibility. It's a much bigger picture than just you. Is there an element that possibly some of them simply aren't the sharpest knife in the drawer and therefore that exacerbates the problem? Um, I think anybody who has the ability to operate a smartphone, and I think by and large pretty much everybody has, um, should understand the consequences. But I do, I take your point, and I do believe that it is incumbent on sporting organisations to help and support and understand that this isn't something that's going to go away. And that every player, every athlete, every sports person that's coming through the ranks now will be in a situation like this at some point for, for varying degrees. Um, you know, be it the cases you've mentioned, the very high-profile ones, or maybe something much smaller. But there's a potential there for everyone. So why not? Why not grab them while they're young, as a lot of our sporting organizations are, and just making them aware. Give them another bit in their toolkit that actually gives them an opportunity to cope better. Does how much that goes wrong surprise you? Um, no, I think I, my career has shown me that on a daily basis, these things will happen. I do tend to bang my head off a wall um, because it happens in politics, it happens in, in business, it happens in sport all the time. And I believe Stephen always will. I can't believe it never will. We're humans, we're fallible, um, we will make mistakes, we will always do that. Social media is an unforgiving friend and will uh, make sure that everybody knows about it. So, so yeah, I, I, I find I, I, my breath is taken away on many occasions, but uh, I think I've, I've been around the block enough to know it will carry on long after I'm gone. The Tour de France could take a toll on the New Zealand men's road cycling team at the Glasgow Commonwealth Games. The road and mountain bike teams were announced this week with the men's road squad boasting an experienced lineup. The double Olympic medalist Hayden Ralston and 37-year-old former world champion Greg Henderson will be competing at their fourth Commonwealth Games. Five of the six men's squad currently ride for professional teams. Bike New Zealand's high performance manager Mark Elliott says a couple of them could be riding the Tour de France, but he's unsure just who and just what toll it'll take on the riders with the tour finishing only a week before July's Glasgow road race. I also spoke to him about the age of the road cycling squad. I wouldn't be worried about uh, their age. I think um, what we see in cycling is the the, the age of the cyclists is, is um, where your strength comes from and you know the fact that we've got some you know, senior guys like Greg. I mean, Greg's just finished um, you know, the bunch sprint and just missed out on the podium in the Tour of Turkey. Hayden Ralston, um, I think we all saw him, you know, doing a whole lot of work on the front at the Paris Roubaix only a couple of weeks ago before he crashed, and I just go to show those guys are actually, um, you know, at the forefront of their game. And uh, when we look at the Commonwealth Games course, 180 k is actually for some of them when they're used to racing 250. This is actually a bit of a um, bit of a short old day for them. So you know, I think the um, experience and the the strength these guys will have will play well to the uh, the course in Glasgow. Or is the course maybe not going to be long enough? Oh, well, it's a tough course, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's lumpy, it's up and down the whole time, there's a lot of corners, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, power climbs, and, you know, that, that's going to suit these guys, you know, Greg and Rolly, they've, you know, done a lot of track work, which involves, you know, good short-term peak power work, so 
I think the course will suit them and, and it'll, it'll suit um, you know good hard rider and, and we've got that you know Jesse Jack um, Rolly Hendy that they're all um, you know know what it's like to take the hard grass so I, I think we've got a really strong team. Tactics too, obviously going to, going to play a big part. Is there going to be a sort of a nominated lead rider? How, how are we going to work things? You know, cycling's a, a tactical game of chess on wheels and a, and a bunch of 100 people um, with all different agendas and, and a key thing is about uh, you know guys having key roles. I think um, now we've got this team uh, selected, it's going to be about working through and, and setting down what that uh, tactics looks, looks like, so we'll, we'll just be working through that over the course of the next couple of months. So well, presumably Greg Henderson or Hayden Ralston, though, would seem to be the, the prime medal candidates? Yeah, well, they're, the, they're the, uh, the big guys, the big hitters that have been there and done that. But we know the strength of uh, a guy like Jack Bauer. We know what role he's played in, in his other teams. Uh, we've got, um, you know, Jesse Sargent, incredible form at the moment. And, you know, he's also, um, you know, he hasn't been given a, an opportunity to unleash himself, we said, in the time trial. And then we've got, um, obviously, the, the youth and, the, I guess, the, the shorter, snappier size of the likes of James Warren and George Bennett. So a lot of it's going to come down to um, how we'd like to control the race and then, obviously, that uh, make sure you've got uh, options as the race unfolds. So it's uh, the great tactics of road racing. The, the women's team, obviously, led by Linda Willemson. Is that stronger or getting stronger? Yeah, well, we've got some good depth in our young girls, and I guess um, you know the likes of uh, Emily Collins and Reese Trotman. You know, not household names, but they're, they're you know, young girls that are developing very, very well. And you know, the fact that Emily's on the same team as Linda means that she knows how Linda operates. You know, knows how, uh, knows how she can support us. So, I guess the exciting thing is that um, you know, as opposed to the men, a lot of these uh, you know young ladies are, are, are young, and they've got. Um, opportunities in front of them so it's a good long-term game for us to give them this exposure and opportunity. Presumably the, the time trial will be uh, Willemson's target though. It is indeed you know Linda's um, you know into Glasgow in a couple of weeks time just to um, just, you know, over, you know, get and analyse the course and, and she's up there with one of our, our key team members to support her to, to work through that so your TT's um, what it's about you know we don't want to see Linda um, another silver we'd love to see her on top of the podium in the TT. The mountain bike team, I mean, you look at the name of Anton Cooper, you actually think he's been around a while, but he's still only 19. <laughs> That's right, I and mean, it's hard to believe this young guy from Christchurch is um, you know, still so young and you know, obviously got a long way to go, and you know, we add that to the mix. Um, Sam Gaze, who won you know, also just first year out of juniors, won, won the national title this year and, and was, um, you know, is, is already racing very, very well in Europe. So it's exciting for the future of that sport that we've got two young guys really, really clear of what it takes to be a professional athlete, They're working hard to to make their gains on that um, you know very tough European circuit, and um, you know, to have them again, they've, they've got a, a massive desire to um, be on the podium for for New Zealand as, as uh, Commonwealth Game mountain bikers. And when do you get into sort of Glasgow as a group? I mean, uh, uh, the track, uh, you know, the, the road and track and, and mountain bike people are uh, presumably they're obviously coming from from around the the place from their professional yeah, team. Could, couldn't be coming from a more diverse location for all of them. Really, you know, we've got um, the track team are, are meeting in Bordeaux uh, early July, doing a couple of weeks there before they head up to Glasgow. Uh, it's you know we're hoping that there'll be a couple of guys on the road team that will be doing the Tour de France, so they'll be coming off the Tour de France. We've got guys who'll be doing, um, you know, pro team tour racing in Europe and America. So, you know, there's a diverse group coming together. Uh, I think our track team's planning to be into the games on the 17th of July, into the village, and uh, the road team will be coming in later, as, and the mountain bikers will be a little bit in between. So, you know, we start day one in Glasgow uh, on the opening ceremony. Um, you know, 
evening after the opening ceremony and we race right through to the end of the games on August the 3rd. So, uh, you know, it depends on what's best for performance for each of those riders. And where are things at? Uh, you mentioned there the Tour de France. Who's, I mean, obviously Hayden and who else is in, in line for, for that? You know, look at the guys that have been on the rosters and, and the tour before, Jack Bauer, um, Greg Henderson, GC Sargent. I mean, that's uh, obviously part of the pro team's call and, and not something we have control of. So we just have to be adaptive to that. good thing is that yeah, the motivation for these guys, you know, to race for their country is um, they don't get those opportunities very often. So, you know, they have a high motivation, but it's got to be balanced with their pro tour commitments. I was talking with Bike New Zealand's high performance manager, Mark Elliott. The informed Pulse goal attack and former Silver Fern Donna Wilkins has dismissed any possibility of a late bid to be part of the New Zealand netball team's Commonwealth Games campaign. With the Silver Fern's attack circle not as dominant as could be expected over the past 18 months, Wilkins could add some starch to the lineup. The 36-year-old played the last of her 64 tests for the Silver Ferns in 2002. Although Silver Ferns coach Waitamanu did ask her last year if she was interested in competing in Glasgow. Wilkins declined the offer then, and despite a strong performance against the Silver Fern defensive combination of Casey Kapoor and Liana Debrain in the Pulse's win over the Waikato Bay of Plenty Magic this week, she says her position hasn't changed. I've been pretty happy with um, a few of my games, but at the end of the day, you've still got to get the win to be completely satisfied, don't you? You know, you're always, you're always happy if you play well, but it doesn't matter if you don't win at the end of the day, but... What was really encouraging from our game against the Magic was defensively the effort right from our goal shooter from Irene right through to Katrina at the back was pretty intense and you know we fought really hard to get possession back if we turned the ball over and um, and I don't think the Magic um, handled that pressure very well and you know our D's got some superb ball and, and that's what we've been trying to to aim to and and we finally succeeded in putting a performance. Um, that we were happy with on court with that. I suppose a 10-point win is something that you could only have, have dreamt about, really. Yeah, look, we, we knew um, from our first game that we played against the Magic, we probably shouldn't have even gone into extra time. We had opportunities to win it. Um, but, of course, we you know won by three in extra time. We just wanted to do it again. We wanted to repeat. So, yeah, it was, it was a nice wee bonus to win by that 10-point margin because in this competition there are no bonus points for coming close to the team so it all comes down to goal differential if you're on the same points as somebody else so that's definitely going to help for us. Uh, uh, the fact you were coming up against a, a Silver Fern defensive combination and Casey and uh, Leanna did uh, did that fire you up at all? Oh not really like, I don't think my preparation was any different for this game than it has been for any other game um, but you do. They've been performing really well. That's probably what's kept the magic where they are at the moment. And obviously, we're the only team that's beaten them, and we're we're fortunate enough to beat them twice. So it was just a matter of going out there and concentrating on what we can do. Look, you know, there's Irene and myself are both experienced players. So, and Irene's been playing with them for a number of years and training against them week in week out. So she she knows what to do against them and and how to play. So we just had to tap into that and go out and do our own job. And I think we did that well. Now you've got the tactics this weekend. Um, there's, a, there's obviously a point to prove there, isn't there? Uh, there's a huge point to prove. And, and they'll be coming out firing as well because they know they've beaten us once. So they'll be like, why can't we do it again? It's their home game um, in Nelson. So, you know, and it's huge for us. Again, our season, every game that we, we have now is really, really critical for us. And we'll be treating it like a final. And um, hopefully we can put the same sort of performance out there. But, yeah, big point to prove for us this weekend. Do you think self-belief's been, been a, a huge factor in the pulse underperforming over, over recent years? Yeah, probably. And um, But we have high expectations, and I think everyone was talking us up 
um, you know, our goal this season was to make top four. And, um, you know, we've been sort of talked up that we're going to be there or thereabouts. And, you know, and then there's a lot of talk now that we haven't delivered. But, you know, there's been a couple of games that we've really let ourselves down. And we've now just got to concentrate on getting the wins now in the next four games um, to, you know, to make that top four. And, and we believe we can do it. So there's definitely self belief there. But as I say, you've still got to put the performance out on court. Now, have you had any approach from Y at all over the Com games more recently? Um, no, I did see Y after the game, but we didn't talk. But no, you know, look, I've got three little kids at home, and um, they're my my top priority at the moment. This is just sort of a, a side event for me um, with the Pulse, and I'm pleased that they um, can kind of fit me into their program and um, have me coming backwards and forwards. Otherwise, I definitely wouldn't be able to do it. And you know, I love playing the game, and I love the team and the atmosphere up here. And I'm just I'm just fortunate enough that I can do both, be a mum and play netball. Any thought though that if she did approach you, would you make yourself available? Oh look, it's only a couple of months out to the Commonwealth Games, and I think realistically, if you if you wanted to be involved, um, you know, I should have made myself available last year. I knew it was coming up, and um, you know, I, I don't think it's fair on, on the other people that are there to go. Oh, now I'm I want to play. Um, so that's not something that I would do. But um, if I'm being absolutely honest, it's not something that I desire to do. I was talking to Pulse Goal Attack and former Silver Fern Donna Wilkins. The final effort against the seconds that have kept him and many others from the four-minute mile. The tape is broken, and so is the record athletes have long been dreaming about. But at first, Bannister knows little about it. He stumbles into the arms of his coach, completely exhausted by his magnificent effort. Sir Roger Bannister, the first man to run a mile in less than four minutes, has revealed he has Parkinson's disease. The 85-year-old Englishman made sporting history 60 years ago this week with his landmark run at Oxford's Ifley Road. The former neurologist was diagnosed with the condition three years ago. Sir Roger shocked the world when he ran a mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds, to become the first person to break the four-minute barrier. Bannister was helped by Sir Christopher Chatterway and Chris Brasher, who acted as pace setters. Brasher died in 2003 after a short illness, and Chatterway died from cancer in January. Despite it being 60 years ago, Bannister says he still has a clear memory of that day at Ifley Road. On a bad day with wind, it's necessary to run, in order to break a four-minute mile, to run it in the equivalent of 3.56, four seconds better. And I talked to Franz Stamfel, who by then was my coach, and I said, look, it, the weather's impossible. Uh, I, I don't know that I can do it. And he said, well, I think you can run in 3.56 on a good day. And what will be the situation if you forego a chance today when the uh, pacemaking is arranged um, and not get another chance? You might never forgive yourself. You might slip and pull a muscle in the next week or so before you had the next chance, or during that interval, either Wes Santee or John Landy might break it. So if you have a, even half a chance, I think you should take it. So having set off and started, how conscious were you of running to a time that the pace needed to be good enough and quick enough? Well, the times of each lap are always announced by the timekeeper so that as the runners go by they hear 57, 58, 59 and uh, Chris Brasher uh, superbly uh, handled the first lap 
I was so full of running, not having done any training for about a week, that I said to him at one point, faster, faster. Uh, he said afterwards, I was going as fast as I could anyway. But at, at any rate, he was uh, perfect for the um, first 400 meters, uh, 58, and then at the half mile, perfect again, 158. So he was two, we were two seconds in hand. Then the third lap, in inevitably the, the slowing takes place then, and Chris Chataway was leading. Um, the time was uh, three minutes and one second. So that meant I had to do the last lap in, uh, in, in 59 seconds. I wasn't absolutely sure I could do that, but I knew that I'd run as hard as I could, so there was no nothing else to be, uh, be attempted but to complete that last lap in 59 seconds. I knew that I couldn't have run any faster, whatever the outcome. And I, I think I lapsed a bit and then recovered, um, and I heard the announcer, who was uh, Norris McQuirter, later famous for the Guinness Book of Records, and he said he'd practiced in the bath that morning on what to say. And so he announced it, and he said the result of event number seven uh, was uh, the one mile was R.G. Bannister of Exeter and uh, Merton Colleges. Um, they never used your Christian name in those days. And then he went on and said, um, in a uh, time which, subject to ratification, will be a new uh, track record, British all-comers record, uh, Commonwealth Games record, European record, world record in three. And then that was the last anyone heard because although there wasn't a very large crowd there, they all sort of shouted and, and, and cheered. So Roger Bannister may be best remembered for the first sub-four-minute mile, but he says his 1954 Commonwealth Games gold medal was the pinnacle of his athletics career. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Houston. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.